Welcome to episode 11 of the Mercenary Podcast. This is Dan Clifton. On today's show, we're joined by entrepreneur, investor, and futurist Russell Buckley to discuss how he helps startups raise capital, the sharing economy, and how certain jobs will completely change in the next 10 to 20 years. We get into a lot of different stuff, including how London is sort of Europe's answer to Silicon Valley, how Russell thinks computers will completely take over by 2045, and we also talk about virtual reality. Okay, this is episode 11 of the Mercenary Podcast. My name is Matt Monahan. Uh, I've got Dan Clifton in Los Angeles. I'm broadcasting from uh, Ocean City, New Jersey, and we have Russell Buckley in London, right? Yeah, that's right, London. Cool. And Russell is a entrepreneur, investor, uh, advisor to various governments, um, and a very, very smart futurist. Uh, he was he was brought to us uh, actually from uh, a relative of Thompson Plyler who was on episode two, um, and it sh- I guess she was so enamored by the speech that you gave uh, at her uh, organization uh, that she said you know, you have to have this guy on you have to talk to us. Um, so I'm pretty psyched. Um, we usually start this off by kind of like me and Dan just talking a little bit about what we've done in the past like day or so. Uh, I'll I'll lead that off. Um, so Russell, I don't know if you've checked out what, uh, what we do, but, um, I'm a kind of a software designer and like product manager for a, uh, startup in Philadelphia and we do, um, business intelligence, which is, is basically just taking a bunch of data, consolidating it, and then uh, pumping out charts that, uh, people can check. And, um, we're, we're working on a project right now that le- allows the um, the user do a lot of the ETL process, which is basically just um, when you have maybe two different tables of disparate data, figuring out how to do the calculations to uh, combine them and then make it really self-service. That's like a huge uh, huge thing that our customers have wanted, so we're finally doing it, and uh, it's it's going really well. So for the last three weeks... We've been just trying to put out like an MVP of that product, and we're going to launch something on Monday uh, that we're pretty psyched about. And uh, it's it's kind of cool because it's been going like usually in software, everything's delayed and things take forever, but this has been like going really really quickly. Um, so I'm pretty happy about that. Dan, what have you been up to? Um, the past week, uh, there's a project that I'll be involved in in April and May, and we're not really sure where it's going to be shot. Whether it's going to be in LA. Uh, or maybe Canada, because the Canadian currency is kind of is weaker than it has been uh, over the past few months, and so we might go to Canada. So really, right now it's the like the vetting process of looking at uh, you know where the film might be best uh, suited to shoot. So um, a little bit of more of the same, but that's sort of like trying to, what I'm trying to figure it out in the past week. Cool. So Russell, uh, since we, we were it was a hard time trying to pin a title on you, can you kind of give like a like a 20 second uh elevator speech about yourself <laughs> well yeah. he, he just he just said he didn't have one <laughs> that's <laughs> right, right right before you, hit you record, on the spot. He's like, i don't have i don't have this well i uh, mean i guess we can kind of start off with uh you were you were like a very early employee at admob yeah yeah um, so, so yeah. shall i talk to you a bit about that and uh, how i how i got the job there and stuff yeah Okay, so I mean, I was very early into mobile um, and uh, started a, a location-based marketing company back in 2000, which, um, as history has shown, was ridiculously too early. Um, right. But right. but learned quite a lot, and it was one of the very first mobile startups in the world, I think. And um, it was obvious to me uh, at the time and subsequently that mobile was going to be really, really big. Uh, but it wasn't really obvious to the rest of the world, unfortunately. So I went through this. We went actually went bust in 2001. We uh, we were, were actually doing quite well. The company was called Zagme, and uh, we uh, signed a new round of funding with our VCs on September the 11th, 2001. Which you might remember, it wasn't a great day for the world. And in the sort of confusion and the you know the, the markets dived afterwards, the VCs changed their minds, and so we were. 
um, stuck in this place where, you know, we were a healthy little startup um, uh, with suddenly no money, which was uh, completely unforecastable. And uh, we, had, we basically went bust um, overnight, really. Um, but as I say, I still believed in it, still was flying the mobile flag and um, that I was trying to do bits of consultancy and persuade the rest of the world who wasn't very interested in listening at the time that um, mobile was going to be big and uh, we should be doing more mobile projects and stuff like that. So the way I did it was um, became one of the early bloggers, I suppose. Um, wrote a blog which I still occasionally update um, called Mob Happy and um, it was read by a lot of people, about 50,000 people or so in its heyday so in 2006 um, uh, when uh, Omar Hamoui was the, uh, the the founder and CEO of, of AdMob was just starting off um, the, some of the VCs he knew and he was talking to about investing in, in AdMob um, read my blog and said that you know Russell was the world's expert in this kind of area, so we should hook up and, and, and have a chat. So yeah, I flew out to meet Omar in uh, 2006 and became the first employee. Um, and shortly after that, we got uh, funding in place and grew the company so until in 2010, um, uh, Google bought us for their for the time their third biggest acquisition. So it was probably oh, wow. the first, first time that um, a, uh, a European, let's call it, um, had ever been employed by, as a first employee, certainly, by a Silicon Valley-based startup. So um, <laughs> a world first, perhaps. <laughs> wow. So what did you do for, for AdMob? Well, I started off by um, sort of setting up and running the um, EMEA region, the Europe, Europe and Africa, basically, um, <clears throat> as, the, uh, as the managing director. And about two years into that, doing really well, um, we decided to change my role slightly to become more of a global role, um, which was sort of the, I suppose, outward facing. Uh, Omar is a great public speaker, but he tended to want to be more product focused and internal focused. So I was the guy running around the world, um, giving speeches at conferences and saying things to people like, I'll get my people to call your people and, and do deals like that kind of thing. Dan, Dan absolutely loves saying that. Yeah, no, I, I don't. Uh, I, don't, I don't like saying that. <laughs> so many people, so many people here, uh, like their first inclination is to hire uh, two assistants and an intern, like before they've even actually like signed a client. You know, I feel like there's so many people who just have like they have a huge staff right away, and that's always the the big entourage and the big staff is never, uh, you know, and having people to call is never the the right move right away, eventually, but not right away. Yeah, absolutely. But, I mean, it, it kind of actually, in, in hindsight, made a lot of sense to have someone in Europe on the ground on, on a day one because at the time, I mean, what we were basically doing at AdMob is um, putting um, advertising on mobile websites or, or WAP sites, as they were actually called back in the day. Yeah, um, yeah. And, uh, and, and this was all before we had apps and stuff and, um, and, and uh, even before the iPhone, obviously, um, in 2006. So a lot of the companies who had all these fantastically big um, uh, websites and, and mobile websites um, were actually based in Europe. So the idea that somebody could be based here and uh, run around spanning them up, whereas if you've gone the traditional route of, you know, starting in Silicon Valley, talking to American companies, et cetera, and, and thinking about business development in, in Europe a couple of years later maybe – it, it may not have been as successful because all our early wins were certainly through with European companies. So there was no strategy towards that. I mean, by the way, it was just a, one of those lucky accidents which happened as a result of uh, me being being employed. But uh, in, in hindsight, you could say it was an extremely smart thing to do. I think. Right. I'm just thinking like there's so much. Uh, I think Sarah Lacey wrote a book like "Once You're Lucky, Twice You're Good," and yeah, uh, yeah it's just about how. Like a lot of the the people that were at PayPal were just like just kind of along for the ride, and then now all the ones that are successful since then with other companies. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's a great game they play in the valley, isn't it? Um, you know, once you're lucky, twice you're good, and trying to prove prove to the world that you are good. Yeah, as opposed to really lucky. Um, we, we don't really have that so much in in Europe because the um, we don't have the um, as many lucky people, let's say, in the beginning, and uh, so we haven't quite got around to playing that game yet. Although I have to say the uh, the tech scene in in London is, um, in particular, is really amazing in t in comparison to what it was, you know, even two or three years ago. Um, and you've got a lot of more uh, money coming in through the venture capital markets. I mean, Google just started. Google Ventures just started over here. 
um, late last year um, uh, with the intention of investing $125 million a year, which is a quite a significant slug of extra money in, in our market. Um, and there's a couple of other funds which are set up as well. So I, I've got no doubt that um, we're, we're, heading, we're heading for greatness. Um, and a lot of the companies I help um, uh, and, and uh, invest in on a, on a daily basis sort of thing, we've got some really interesting companies now, which I, I think you couldn't really have said um, with such confidence, uh, let's say, five years ago. So I guess in keeping with our kind of um, like theme, like, so what did you do yesterday? Um, we're, we're trying to get into like the real nitty gritty of like what people's lives are like. Or like, sure. let's say like Friday or, or uh, Thursday, like what's, what's an average day during the week? Um, well, lo- last week was um, unfortunate because my uh, daughter just had her uh, gallbladder out. So, oh, sorry. Uh, um, she's getting better now, but she sort of goes camp but next to hospital bed. But um, but I suppose typically what a, what a, a typical work day would look like. Um, I sort of have two roles in the world, really, uh, one of which is to... Um, help startups. I mean, basically, well, let me go back a bit. When I left AdMob, um, uh, or when I left Google more, more precisely, I, I stayed about eight months at Google and, and decided that uh, it wasn't really for me. Um, first, I think positive reasons as much as anything else. Um, one of the things I wanted to do was to help UK become a better place to start and run a tech company. And so what we what we started off by doing was uh, I got together uh, with some some friends who sort of had exits in mobile and technology uh, and, and media, let's call it, and we put together a small fund of our own money uh, and started to invest in in startups. And um, I think it's um, it, we would tend to get much more actively involved um, than the typical angel investors. So very often we take a board seat or I become chairman or, or something like that. Um, and, and that was going pretty well. Um, we um, we invested in 25 companies. We also invested in um, in Techstars when they started over here. Uh, London was the first overseas accelerator um, uh, branch they did. And uh, so we got quite involved in the mentoring of those teams and uh, investing in the fund, which, which makes it all possible. So we've got another sort of 40 or 50 um, companies um, with tiny little stakes through the, the Techstars uh, program. Which uh, which was which was pretty cool, and then um, one day I got a call from um, a headhunter. I wasn't really planning to look for a job again, to be honest, but um, it was sort of congruent with what I was trying to do in terms of help the tech um, ecosystem. And uh, the job was to help um, a joint initiative between the UKTI, which is the UK Department of uh, trade and investment, um, part of government here, uh, and um, and the uh, Prime Minister's office to help resolve the problems around Series A um, investment. So, uh, for uh, for listeners who aren't so familiar with it, generally speaking, your first round is called a seed round, uh, and then the next round of investments called a Series A. So, just when you're starting to get going, you need your Series A, and there's, there's generally a, a acknowledged to be a worldwide crunch around Series A. So, a lot of companies get seed investment and then they can't get any more and, and some promising companies tend to die out at that point um so there was clearly a, an issue and the first idea was um well if there's not it, it's probably a, an, a, an issue of not being enough money in the market so let's go and look for money like in the valley in, in new york in japan etc and uh and we would introduce them to the right com- right potential investors um, overseas and it quickly became clear that that wasn't really the problem. The problem was more around uh, companies not knowing how to talk to investors, what to say to them, and uh, and who to talk to. Um, so we had a sort of restructure when, when I kind of took over that part of the the, the, the program, and we launched a sort of in a quite low key way. Um, initiative um, called the Afterburner Program, and essentially what we do is we take twenty five companies uh, who need that support around um around fundraising um and uh and and help them with that so it's not really business consulting it's more about um how you how you talk to investors which somehow everybody seems to know in the valley but it was quite clear after working for a little while that people didn't really understand in quite the same way here um was it really like how to give a how to give a convincing pitch that was maybe like more financial uh um, well, yes, it was. I mean, there's, there's a, lot, a lot of different reasons. I mean, first of all, there's a very British thing, which was which is being, um, you know, very modest about your achievements. 
Mm. Um, so mm. I'll, I'll give you a little story. One of our VCs, when we were doing AdMob, I'd done this big deal one day. And uh, the guy phoned me up and said, uh, Russell, that's really awesome, that deal. And I said in a very British way, oh, no, no, it was nothing. And he said, oh, really? And put the phone down. <laughs> so, <laughs> I was just sort of being very British. So there's, a, there's certainly a trait uh, that um, British people don't like to sort of show off, as it were. Uh, and that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get very people very excited when you're pitching to them. But there's just a general... Uh, ignorance about what people are, what investments what investors are looking for um and and that, and that ranges from lots of different things it's not just about the tone of voice but very often you'll get um ceos doing their sales deck as a presentation to investors and obviously investors are interested in different things to potential customers um and um there's other mistakes that you know there's um people start talking about what an exit might look like um, and, and that's, uh, you know, a bit, again, a, a red flag to an investor because in their heads, what they're investing in or they're, what they're looking for is companies which can be billion dollar or more exits. And if you start talking about trade sales for a couple of hundred million dollars, that's generally speaking uh, a failure for the investor. So why would they uh, think about investing if you were already thinking about that? Uh, and it, it might even indeed be a sign of, um, of a lack of ambition or uh, really a lack of what to know, what, what, the, what the investors are looking for. So there's lots of, sort of tricks of the trade which um, uh, kind of sound like common sense once you've known them, but actually they're just learned behaviour from you know helping um, well, hundreds of companies, I suppose, um, with their investment. So um, the program's really been running up, up and running since uh, April. Um, and I'd say in, in quite a low-key way. I mean, there's a tendency in government to um, make big announcements and then uh, try and figure out how you're going to deliver the practicalities of it. And I wanted to sort of try and reach out uh, in a very low-key and, and um, kind of almost under-the-radar thing um approach um and then uh, once it was up and running we could then make a wider announcement um so so far since april we've helped um companies raise um 55 million dollars um so we seem to be either we're very good at picking winners or we help we're good at helping them uh in their pitch or, or in reality it's a combination of both and there's no point in helping companies which aren't ever going to make it but equally um you know what you're trying to do is is, is make the great companies succeed uh and particularly the ones where they're they're really good businesses but they're not necessarily very good at explaining why they're good investments right i want to ask you guys a question about track record um uh can you guys hear me actually yeah yeah. I wanted to ask you guys about track record in um, in Silicon Valley or the uh, the London equivalent, uh, Russell, that you're uh, heavily mixed in. Um, what uh, you know? How many successful exits or sort of company flips uh, does one need to have before they're sort of infallible, or where they can't? You know, it's like if they have one that doesn't work. Like what? How, how much does track record play into? Uh, you know, investors and entrepreneurs sort of profiles within that world. Like, do you just need one hit and that's kind of it and you can kind of fail other, um, you know, other uh, raises or how does it kind of work? Well, it's like all these things, it's a bit of an inexact science, I would say. I mean, the trouble, I mean, you know, what we were talking about earlier on, once you're lucky, twice you're good. Well, if someone's had one successful exit, it doesn't mean to say they're going to be doing it again. Uh, and also that there's other considerations um, around the market about timing. You know, timing is something which is so important um, in investments. If you think of AdMob, um, if we launched two years before, we probably wouldn't have made it because there weren't enough websites uh, and therefore enough money we could play, make from ads. And two years later, the competition was already well established. Um, admittedly, a lot of it had come in because we were successful and they were copying us. But but equally, um, you know, starting a company two years later would have been much, much harder. Um, so um, with the best will in the world, um, if you've got great team, uh, great idea, great market opportunity, but the wrong timing, um, there's not much you can do about it. Um, you know, and I found that very early as in, in, on, I was talking earlier on about the Zagni project. Well, you know, it was, it was 15 years, maybe even 20 years ahead of its time. Um, and that's all very well if you want to be a visionary, but if you want to create a successful business, it's, it's a, it's a really bad idea. Um, and I think there's also, you know, um, most people in their careers find, um, 
find jobs where or roles where they've been incredibly successful or, or, or not. Um, you know, I can think my career is certainly a bit of a mixed bag. Some, in some roles I've been really, you know, successful and other ones less so. Um, so trying to anticipate how people are going to succeed uh, in, in different times of their life is, is also a problem. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe the, the second time around, they're less hungry, as an example. Um, but on the other hand, they're going to make less obvious mistakes. So it's, it's very, very difficult to to answer that question. But what I would say, um, you know, investors always say it's all about the people. And um, I think you have to sort of make your own mistakes a few times as an investor to realize it really is about the people. Um, so <clears throat> at times I've, I've failed as an investor um, have been when I've got more excited about the idea than the people who have to deliver it. And the times I've succeeded are the, when I've looked at the people and said, well, actually, you know what, the idea is not really right, but these people are going to find a way of solving the problem they're trying to solve and therefore we should invest. And I can think of, you know, half a dozen like that and half a dozen of the other ones where, you know, I've just thought, hey, this is a really neat idea and we should be supporting it. Um, so it is all about the people. Yeah, it truly is. There's there's so many different VC um, firms that they, they, they just say explicitly, like, we invest in people, people and markets. Uh, I yeah. forget who said that. It might have been like Paul Graham, um, but not in this, not specifically ideas. Exactly. Uh, now, well, the market size is, is a different um, issue. I mean, obviously... You know, if you have a, an investor, um, like our, our strategy is to either invest um, in companies which will be backed by VCs at some point, or, or we actually increasingly investing at the same time as VCs, so they can see the value that we're adding to our investments, and therefore they want us on board. Because clearly, the amount of money we invest as, as small private investors are tends to be very small in, in relation to what a VC might be putting in. So. The idea of investing alongside us, uh, making room in the round, isn't com- competing with them in any way, um, but will maybe you know um, add significant value uh, at no extra cost to the VC. So um, that that kind of makes sense too. But markets is clearly going to be a big one because you know I can invest in the brightest person in the world, um, and if the market size isn't there, the VCs aren't going to follow. Right. Yeah, there's a, this whole kind of like – it seems like the, the investment market almost kind of like – I don't know if the right word is cannibalizes, but like it feeds on itself in that you like you have lots of companies that get funded and then, um, then a lot of companies become their customers who are also getting funded. Yeah. So – and then like it creates a market and then you just kind of like keep it going long enough that, that some of these companies can, can IPO. Um, but you kind of wonder like – how much of that is like almost like artificial like markets based that are just coming about based on funding? It sounds very much like a bubble <laughs> in, in many ways. Um, you know, I, I think that the difficult, it's difficult to predict where, where we are in the cycle. And I mean, there will be a, a bust at some point, um, just as there always has been. Um, but certainly in, in London, um, which is, you know, where I spend most of my time, um, and, and and energy uh, it doesn't really feel like a bubble i mean the um the uh, invest the investing scene here the, the valuations are much lower than the valley um and you know the, the teams are good and there's lots of reasons why um the, you know you might want to start a business in london um as opposed to the valley i think it's a nonsense to say that london you know people you hear, hear um quotes all the time that you know we're going to be the new silicon valley well we don't want it to be this new silicon valley because london's got some good things going for it but it certainly can't compete with the valley in, in many respects but as an example if you're going to start a global company with a global focus on day one uh london's a lot smarter place to do it than perhaps the valley would be you know the time zones are better the um, flights to all the emerging markets are, are much shorter um and and we're at the center of um you know we've still got greenwich mean time which is the center of time so you can um you know talk to you guys in the evening and uh and the and asia in the morning and and it sort of fits in very nicely we've also got lots going on in terms of fashion and culture and um financial technology and all those sort of things so there's some really good reasons why you want to start um might want to start a company in in london as opposed to the valley uh, as much as anything um as well you've got the you know lots of uh, highly qualified people who tend to be cheaper than engineers in the valley, um, and uh, um, you know you can also get a get a meal at, after ten o'clock at night. 
Have you come across this like kind of digital nomad uh, movement of these people that are basically just living out of a backpack with a um, with a laptop and are either running companies or are just kind of freelancing? Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, only only anecdotally, I, I guess yeah. the kind of who pioneered this was was Tim Ferriss with his um, four hour work week. Yeah, I think so. Running around the world. Um, doing um tango dancing and at the same time running a highly successful business um um remotely kind of thing i think it is catching on but i don't know anybody who's specifically doing it um although most companies i think these days are, are more and more flexible i mean um there's a company i'm a chairman, a chairman of called tap deck which has got um three uh, engineers in the czech republic and they tend to work one week in the czech republic with their friends and stuff and then they come to london for three weeks and um and work from there so um and I guess you've got people like WordPress who are pretty much a virtual company from the beginning. Um, so um, I think it's catching on. I think the difficulty is um, <clears throat> having a highly dispersed workforce is it's very difficult to build culture. Right. That, that still seems to be the, the main difficulty um, when you've got people all the way around the world. I mean, it's not to say it can't be done. It just means you have to work even harder at it than you normally do. do and, and cultures are really important part of you know a business success so i guess you could do it providing that you're very conscious of that and you do have regular face-to-face meetings um and that kind of stuff um and just as i say work really hard at it to make sure that you overcome the inherent difficulties yeah that's something that uh especially at rj metrics we like took in the very beginning we like spent a lot of time really thinking about like if whatever the culture was at 10 people was what it was going to be at 100 people and that's where we are right now and so we had to make like very deliberate decisions to like really get the, get the, like get the culture and, and like kind of how you're communicating that down really well. We even, we even changed our logo because of that. Um, and that was like a really interesting process because it wasn't, it wasn't obvious why that was so important at the time. So it took a lot of like convincing, uh, to really like spend the time on it. And yeah, I think it's, some, it's a mistake a lot of startups make. They just think that, um, you know, having an office and putting people in it, a culture is going to emerge. And, um, you know, I, I think that's uh, that's a mistake. It's something you learn at some point you've got to do and you've got to work at really hard. Uh, and a lot of problems companies have with staff is all down to culture. You know, either they don't fit in with the culture that exists and and, the, and that culture check hasn't been done at the hiring uh, interview um, or, or, or the culture just doesn't work for whatever reason and um and and you start losing losing people yeah well building culture is tough in the film industry because essentially everyone is permalance you know unless you have a company that has decent overhead that has um you know a full-time staff of development people and other production people whenever you make a movie you're basically hiring 150 people for six weeks eight weeks and then you know you try and get people you've worked with before but as soon as the movie ends, uh, you know, people are on to the next job and have sort of moved on. So I think, um, you know, although we do so much over Skype and, and we, you know, talk to people in different cities all the time, this really, we can't get by without face-to-face meetings. Uh, like it just would never, it would never work because eventually we just have to, we have to resort to that, unfortunately. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think actually the way the film industry works is, is, is a very interesting glimpse of how we all might be working in the future. I mean, obviously, the idea of the 40-year job has gone some time ago, but I don't think a lot of people have quite got, kind of quite got their head around the fact that actually, you know, you're likely to have maybe 20 or 30 jobs in your life, not just one or two. Uh, and, uh, and I think, you know, a lot we could learn a lot from how the film industry organises itself uh, to learn the lessons for the future way of um, of how we work. Or how the rest of <laughs> That kind of brings me to. I wanted to like bring up the like the speeches you've you've given um, about futurism, and uh, I like one of the the themes that I, I keep hearing is always just like it's almost like the Uberization of of everything, where we'll we'll just live in this just in time universe where you're uh, you could ha- you could have five different accounts on different like handyman kind of like service. Uh, platforms and you just kind of respond to the ones you want to do so that everyone like no one really just has has a central employer they're just like oh yeah I'll, I could be um, a plumber here I could I could drive my Uber uh, at this point like at this point in the day and then like 
just respond in, in real time to the jobs they want to do. And like, I guess you could lo- take that logically to people who are like knowledge workers. Um, What's also funny because the shared economy has created other jobs. You know, when I was in New York, uh, staying in an Airbnb, there was someone who was there who um, I thought that she was the friend of the person where we were staying because it was sort of advertised that way. And then it turned out that she was an Airbnb manager. And so she managed yeah. uh, like 20 different places in one weekend. And I she think was there's like a, a startup super- called Igloo that does like exactly that. Right, it, they place they they it's the Airbnb of Airbnb. <laughs> they they place people at uh, to do that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but that's it's, kind of it's, funny. it's absolutely fascinating. I mean, you know, uh, on the one hand, um, you know, there's um, there's a possibility that um, uh, that technology is going to be destroying jobs, but actually, technology has never done that yet. It has just created new opportunities for people, um, and actually, generally created what wealth. It just means that if you can't adapt to the changes, that's when you get into trouble. Yeah, I read a – it was like a 19 – I want to say like 72 world book uh, encyclopedia, like year in review. And what was funny was just like robots are going to automate all the jobs. Um, North Korea is is causing a a bunch of unrest. It was like all the same exact – problems that are in our current uh like news right fluctuating oil prices yeah (laughs) and it was just automate like automation is gonna kill everybody's jobs it was well it kind of reminds me matt of the i think you tweeted that photo but there's a photo of um sort of like a madman type setup in in 1960s and um it was i'm not sure i think it was a whole accounts department and someone said you know these jobs uh well well, it's like this entire room was replaced by a spreadsheet well, right, but it's but that's the, the whole point is that you know those as those jobs evolve, it, you know even those sort of like white collar jobs at the time, they had to evolve and they didn't, and yeah. so therefore, well, <laughs> you know, for every like new hire that um, that I interface with at, at RJ, I sent him this this article from Harper's Magazine in 1984, and it's called a um, a spreadsheet way of life or a spreadsheet way of doing business, and it was really just about how in the 80s when people could could use like VisiCalc and these spreadsheet software. It all it meant was like, on the one hand, yes, you're killing that job, that person that was crunching those numbers before. But on the other hand, these business owners are able to model uh, businesses and uh, like or model just things that they would like to do that would be way too expensive for them to model, and they can just change things really quickly. So what what happens is like these tools that are are killing some jobs are allowing businesses that just couldn't exist before to exist. Right. And people think, well, like there must be some logical like um, stop to that. Like eventually, you just automate everything, and everyone you've got a bunch of people that uh, you know have all the capital, and a bunch of people that don't. Uh, and it, I don't think that's ever really true because, like, like in the last episode that we we talked about, like people are going to want to go to Mars. You know, like people, there's going to be people launching spaceships. Economies of scale will bring the prices down. So, like, there's an entire other level of jobs and an opportunity that like people aren't even really considering right now. And well, act, what's the crazy, transition kind of sucks. Yeah. And in the film industry, this is a whole thing. We'll ha- we're going to have a whole virtual reality uh, episode at some point. But uh, after, after looking at Oculus and Samsung uh, last fall, um, I, I was very interested in virtual reality and I'm actually doing a series of shoots in 3d uh, sort of 360 cameras uh, in the near future. Um, but I was, I was at a shoot yesterday and I visited set for this, uh, this Bollywood, uh, shoot. And, um, if you guys aren't familiar, you know, the Oculus Rift is, which I'm sure you are, but it allows you to sort of watch things in 360. And so a lot of these camera systems have been developed now to be able to shoot a 360 environment in live action, not just in sort of a video game environment. Um, and so I was there yesterday and, uh, the camera department, had you know worked on some huge movies and everything and they designed these sort of crazy rigs that have six and eight cameras on them at the same time um but we were just talking about you know once in uh you know live sports live music you know eventually uh and probably in the next two or three years you'll have these cameras placed at sporting events and you know for maybe a hundred dollars a game (laughs) you can just sit at home and not have to go down there and you can just pick whatever seat you want uh, in the interface, that's like, you know, and that you could be that's on whole, stage if you wanted to really. Right. No, and that's actually a lot of the things have been uh, behind the scenes, like back music. Um, but anyway, like that whole model needs to be figured out. But what's so interesting about that is that that market 
it will take away like if you could just be at the 50 yard line of a football game or you know just and then you can skip to be in the, in the stands or right up close or whatever you know people are still going to go to sporting events live there's still going to be an economy of doing that because some things are great live however there's a whole other economy of people who would probably pay a premium fee to literally kind of be on the field in in VR um which doesn't exist and so my point was that, that you know that whole thing just is a whole set of other jobs and opportunities and sub-markets off of virtual reality and hardware and everything that just doesn't exist at all. Yeah, so, and I, I, yeah. I think the other thing about virtual reality, which is, which is really interesting, and, and I agree with the point about the jobs, but um, that you can see that um, the sort of version two of virtual reality is it's coming uh, in the next five years or so is going to be pretty addictive. I mean, if you can do anything and... Uh, experience anything um, with a headset on uh, and a sort of body body mask, as it were. Um, you know, why would you ever want to come out of it? Particularly if you live in sort of like in your your real world is sort of like unemployment and um, and all a bit depressing and everything. Mm-hmm. But actually, in in that world, you can eat whatever you want, you can play whatever you want, you can have sex with whoever you want, um, and uh, and just generally, and, and you always get the girl kind of thing. Um, this does sound like a lot like the synopsis for the uh, uh, Gerard Bartler movie Gamer. If you've seen that film, I feel like that was uh, what you're what you're pitching is the uh, is the synopsis for that so movie. The, like, I thought a lot about that, and I, I thought there was like kind of two things that were you know like the caveats to that. I think one is is like if you're like, if you're in there, you there has to be someone is either taking care of of you. Like there's some amount of money that needs to be spent or in like time. On you know the technicians that like keep the that that machine running, so either you have to pay for that or figure out some way. Maybe you can make it, maybe it can be ad based. You know, you're, you're in the you're kind of like in your virtual world, and then someone starts coming up and talking to you and asking if if you want your mortgage refinanced. Um, and then I guess the other the other side of that is like I think people uh, like might not appreciate like and maybe they will, but. Maybe they don't appreciate like if they get everything they want all the time, it can get really boring. Yeah, there's and no they, conflict basically, yeah. and conflict uh, and uh, and failure as much part of success uh, and life than uh, as anything else. So if you've got no c- contrast between what it feels like to fail and and everything's so easy, it might be a little bit boring. But on the other hand, you could always make sure that there was conflict built into the yeah. system. So That's also true. You can always have uh, some level designer. Uh, yeah. Like an inception. I would say that the um, the experience to me uh, in VR, in the limited stuff that I've seen, and I've seen a lot of tests at this point, is that I, to me it's it's more immersive than you know really any other um, cinematic environment that I've seen uh, because you know it's the, sort of the feeling when you're on a tall building and you know if you're on the top of the Empire State Building, you know that. It's like obviously you're you know you look down obviously you're not going to jump off that building but if you're at the top you know there's some part of your animal brain somewhere that's in the back that just is saying I know you're not going to do this but at the same time you know we're up really high right now yeah. and in um in in watching things whether it's this this little zombie uh, short video game uh, that I had on Oculus and um, looking at stuff there's a, a cool Wright Brothers thing I was watching on on the Samsung system. Um, but regardless of what it is, um, you know, you, you just really feel like you're completely immersed in it. Um, and, you know, and the, the resolution will get a lot better. But that's the feeling, that sort of feeling of, um, of vertigo um, when you're in the uh, environment is unlike anything that I've seen. Yeah, absolutely. And I've, I've played around with the Oculus Rift as well. And it actually, uh, you know, if you, if you move... Uh, in the wrong way, um, you actually start feeling quite nauseous and, and dizzy. Uh, and uh, so I think it's, got, it's actually got quite a long way to go before we're really using this on a daily basis. Uh, but, um, you yeah, know, it'll come. It's just a question of when. Right. And it's right. sort of an uh, uncanny valley question about, you know, how good, you know, how, how you know, resolution-wise and just sort of depth-wise and, and pixel tracking and everything, you know, how good should you get? The, uh, the resolution of the screen and in, in, in whatever the new Oculus uh, model is, you know, before it just gets too real and it's sort of the, you know, the uncanny Valley argument and just gets too disturbing. Uh, you know, we'll see. It'll be, I think it'll be pretty, pretty soon actually uh, from what I've seen. So, 
So if they're, if we're going to undergo all this this change and disruption, like what's the um, what's the advice that you give to people who are you know let's say like seventeen, eighteen years old? Um, yeah. Um, well, I think um, it's an interesting question because my my kids are actually um, nineteen and uh, tw- uh, and twenty two, so of that kind of age. Um, I think there's there's several things um, which which I think are you need to think about one of which is, um, you know, computers are going to, uh, and robots are going to take certain sorts of jobs. Um, so when I went a couple of years to like a careers evening at my uh, daughter's school uh, and it was, you know, traditional, um, you know, middle-class, um, parents standing around and then the 15 year old kids would come up to them and say, what do you do? And what's it like kind of thing. And so you had, you know, doctors and and lawyers and bankers and you know army people and whatever so standing around and then uh, they were asked what what it was like and it suddenly struck me that actually all these 50 year old parents or so had absolutely no idea what it would be like for their kids to to operate in those environments in in 10 years time when they were starting to get their careers off the ground i mean if you think um i don't know uh you know, most general practitioners, uh, doctors, um, that, that sort of first port of call you go to when you're sick, their primary role in life is triage. So they'll try, uh, try and cure you for, you know, the like diseases and then send you off to the right surgeons or specialists. Um, so they're more, more triage signposts than anything else. Uh, the new um, X Prize, or one of the new X Prizes, um, is to have a, a, a Star Trek type tricorder where you wave pe- wave something at people uh, and or scan them, and, and it'll tell you what's wrong with them. So all of a sudden, in maybe ten, fifteen years or so, the role of the GP is going to be hugely diminished, and you're not going to need them anymore. <laughs> so the idea that a um, you know a, a doctor would be able to tell a 15-year-old what it's actually going to be like when they come out of medical school is just ludicrous. Um, in the same way as the the army guy, you know, the traditional thing about armies is that you, you know, if you want to go and join the army, you, you practice marching up and down and, and shouting at people or whatever the approved practice was. And now you'd be much better off um, playing 10,000 hours of um, yes, yes. video games because that's the <laughs> right, way. Right, because now you're an 18-year-old drone pilot somewhere, which is, uh, uh, which is terrifying. Yeah. Um, yeah, especially with the, the healthcare aspects, I, I walked into – so I'm going to, to Thailand in May, and I had to get some vaccinations. And I basically just went to the doctor and was like, I need these two vaccinations because I looked it up on the CDC's website. And he was like, oh, really? You knew you, knew you had to get these? And I was like, yeah. And, and he, he was went through the whole spiel of like asking me, well, have you had any other pain or anything? Like is, is everything all right? And I pulled out uh, my iPhone and I – I go to Wellness FX, which is a company that does blood draws, um, and I do it like every six months. So I had like a whole like panel, and I was like, "Here, you can just look at my blood." This was like three months ago, uh, and he was like, "Oh, wow, all right, you're yep, you're pretty healthy." And I was just like, "Most other people are not doing that. Like most other people are just going, uh, yeah, I guess I feel fine. Um, they're not getting blood tests regularly. But I think what the future is is just you're going to get uh, a wearable that's." constantly uh measuring your blood and you can just have that pipe to wherever you want to go it's uh, just your phone in your pocket just pricking you all day yeah so just like just like you're just walking around and the phone is taking that yeah and when, people when, when, you can get that the information they were getting from my blood i think in the next five years they can get from your skin yeah and then and then you take into account that um you know the, the any cures or, or treatments you get will be diagnosed around your um, DNA yeah, um, yeah. specifically, rather than just a general. Oh, you've got cancer. This will sort it out. It'll be this is the kind of um, this is the kind of uh, drug which will treat you specifically uh, and has been developed specifically for for you. Um, so not only you've got the monitoring side of things, but you've also got the potential to you know cure. A lot, a lot of diseases are a lot more effective than we can today, which leads into the whole, you know, life extension uh, and, and that kind of work. Which is yeah. Uh, I was going to say the um, if we all live to 120, uh, does that actually put a huge strain on everything, like like people say, or are they full of shit and it's actually not that big? Cause it seems as though if the, if the population our, uh, grows, you mean? right? If the, the population, if we're all living to 120, um, I think we'll figure guess, it out. <laughs> you know, like that, that's another opportunity. Just like manage the scarcity we've gotten this far 
Well, right, but except for if if, if the working, if you have, you know, there's a pretty bad ratio in the U.S. now of of, uh, of actual people in the actual workforce versus population. But I, I just wonder if if it's sort of a, you know, uh, uh, three out of four people are, are over the age of 60. I feel like you probably have a problem. Well, it depends on their contribution to the economy. I mean, at the moment, generally people start to retire at you know, 65 or whatever. And that's only an historical um, arbitrary um, figure when you know, most people were figured to go to live until you know, 70 maybe. So they've got a couple of years at the end of their life. Hopefully they weren't too sick, which they could enjoy. But actually, there's no reason why you can't carry on working uh, if your you know, brain and body on, uh, are aligned um, and, and supportive of that idea. Um, if you're into your 80s or 90s um, and with smart drugs for your brain. And I mean, if you think, um, you know, when I was um, went to Singularity University a couple of years ago um, to learn about some of these exponentially growing technologies, this uh, guy walked up and down the lecture theatre in, in an exoskeleton um, and he was paraplegic. Um, but he was, yeah, he was walking around. That's awesome. Now, that's awesome. That, that treatment is, um, was, was designed specifically for rehabilitation rather than, you no know, so to stop muscle wastage. But you can see that a couple of generations down the line, you, that, that is going to be repl- replacing wheelchairs. So, well, in, in truth, it was probably designed uh, by the U.S. military to to kill people. It's probably what the <laughs> the first uh, the first exoskeleton designed. But after that, it was used for more uh, benevolent things. So, yeah, exactly. But that doesn't. If you think um, if you think that um, you know what you could do um, if you had a bunch of pensioners who you know they could they could work all day at um, you know longer, more intensive pace. It, in terms of say, let's say, building a brick wall as an example, um, <laughs> than than a than a sort of thirty year old could, because every every movement is being assisted by their exoskeleton, so they can lift heavy things and jump tall buildings or whatever. So, I I think um, partly it really yeah, the, the bionic uh, grandmother uh, image is is pretty great. You know, just uh, three times as wise and and four times as fast as a uh, as a typical twenty five year old. Times as wise. <laughs> Yeah, but it also you know brings up the whole thing about as we gradually start to merge with machines in in more and more daily basis. I mean, we've always used tools and machines in order to uh, enhance our ability to do stuff. I mean, just clothes and shoes and glasses and you know ear implants and all those kind of things are early early signs of it. But as we uh, technology develops and um, as the um, the, you know, the computers get smarter and smaller. It's almost inevitable that they'll become part of us. I mean, wearables are just one of the um, the next generation of mobile phones. But you know, in twenty five years' time, the, the something we call a mobile phone today will be the size of a red blood cell and a billion times more powerful, um, based on the last twenty five years of um, of, of uh, computing uh, development. So once they're that small and that much more powerful, I mean, think how different our lives could be, and, and hopefully enhanced in some amazing way. Yeah, I feel like the um, it's the classic image of the the house of tomorrow. Um, you know, whether it's it's you know in science fiction films or just thinking about uh, you know General Electric or big companies in the '60s and, and '70s, saying what the house of tomorrow would be. But even in the 21st century, I think for, you're not going to have appliances. You're not going to have all that stuff that people envisioned. And you're just going to walk in and, and instead of turning on TV, you're just going to flick a projection that comes from behind you. Uh, or, or or whatever, and, and just watch you know TV and movies all around the house, and just not have. I don't know. I, I feel like you, you know you can print anything you want. <laughs> I, I guess with a three D printer, if that kind of figures itself out. Do you, um, do you think there's like a? I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but do you think like the there's there's like a big uh, mindfulness uh, push that's happening right now, especially like with people in tech. And it's like it starts out as just like ways to manage like stress and anxiety and pressure and stuff like that. But I think on the other aspect of it is just like the, the point of mindfulness is kind of like to get you to want less, to kind of just be satisfied with what you have, which I think is like counter to the ambition that most people have uh, in, in Silicon Valley and, and, and in tech centers. Um, and do you think like – because so, I mean, a, a small manifestation of that is just like, um, like the Headspace app or like Calm.com. These apps that just are that are you log on, and you just you set aside ten minutes, and maybe it's guided or maybe it's not. There's just kind of like a sound effect, 
and you meditate for yeah. for ten minutes. Um, I mean, do you do you see much of that? Do you see people funding things like that? It, no. Um, well, um, not not over here, but I mean, I'm I've used um, both Headspace and Calm, uh, and and I've actually used transcendental meditation. I have done for the last twenty years or so on a tactical basis. And I don't do it every day because I actually find it makes me too laid back, <laughs> which I don't think is always a good thing. Right, uh, right. But, um, you know, so, yeah, I've just lost another project. Or it, doesn't make, it doesn't make any difference sort of thing. But, um, but I, do, I do do TM and I do do some guided meditation occasionally as well. So I think that's sort of um, that's helpful. Um, but um, I think, um, you know, I think a lot of the, the kind of the stuff we have in tech is sort of inherently – um, conflicting in the sense that people want lots of money, but then, uh, which is sort of like a very capitalist move. But at the same time, the, all the money and the pressure makes them stressed, and therefore they don't live their lives as um, as enjoyably as perhaps someone with less has. So it is an interesting conflict um, sort of being built up there. But I also think um, you know I've um, I'm a big fan of the the Burning Man festival, and um, yeah, and, I, yeah. and I think um, that kind of gives you a, a really interesting insight into what the future might ha- have. In the sense that everybody is sort of re- reliant on themselves. Did you but, Did you go in 2013? That's, I was there. Uh, I think I did actually. Yes. Um, no, maybe 2012. <laughs> um, 2013. Yeah, t- 2012. I think I went. Um, and um but you know and you've got all these people wandering around sort of really just being nice to each other and and sort of going out of their way to entertain each other or or or, or you know reward each other kind of thing that was that's... uh like it was very uh marked that you the defaults that you kind of like had to assume as you go in in there where it was it was kind of like i was taken aback by it like you yeah. you could not litter like it was a, a, an egregious uh sin to to, to litter people were like way really really nice to you everything was yeah. free obviously or is like a giving culture yeah and you also got lots of you know people who could afford it uh, would have yeah. the big and they you know just give away free booze and and uh you know have these gigantic um sound systems and it was just all put a get give a party for everybody there and it it's just it's a very difficult concept to get your head around uh, and it is actually quite confusing <laughs> in the beginning because uh, i think a lot of people arrive there knowing that everything's no, free, but it's like a barter thing. So I'll give you a beer and you give me a cigarette or something. I don't know. Um, and, um, and in fact, it's not that. It's about just giving free beers to people and then somebody else will come up and give you something which they think you might like. Uh, and I think that's actually quite an interesting vision of what the future of humanity might look like when we've got abundance in the sense of everybody's got everything that they need. Um, so therefore, you know, you'll get your sort of kicks and, 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 your societal credits, as it were, your respect from other people by how imaginative and creative you are in terms of giving. So you've got people there practice all year doing, you know, fire dances and building fantastic art cars and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so the whole creativity and the uh, and the giving thing is is a fascinating um, vision of the future. Wouldn't that like the cynic kind of say that? You know that's the society that we live in today, except it's just kind of like masked by the fact that there's money. Um, yeah, I mean one of the one of the things that of the you know the the the, the future um, after the computers take over, um, which is meant to be in 2045, is when everybody's got everything anyway. Um, money will will die as, along with everything else. So um, actually, you'll have to work out a different way of getting respect and and um recognition in society is the uh, uh when the computers actually take over i mean obviously food would still be a commodity to people not to uh not to the robots uh but what is the uh there obviously would still be commodities uh beyond the barter system is that is that how you would see that well i mean the, the i mean there's two, there's two views of i mean there's two views of, of what, what might happen when the uh, computers take over, for want of a better word. One of which is where um, our brains are, after all, only organic computers. We don't know how they work really today, but we know that they are organic computers, generally speaking. And therefore, they could be, in theory, digitized and put into a virtual world, which was the sort of um, idea behind the Matrix, I suppose, without necessarily the sinister aspects of it. 
Um, so um, once you've been sort of beamed up into that world, you wouldn't need a physical body anyway, and therefore food is is not no longer necessary to be grown. Although you might choose to do something equivalent to eating in the virtual world because it's a pleasure, you know, eating your you know um, <clears throat> your fat, fine steak or whatever it is. But it's a virtual steak, not a real one. Um, and the other one is where we merge with the machines in some way and create a race of um, sort of hyper beings um and um both physically and and intelligently um and who knows what those beings will be able to come up with as an alternative to food and nutrients but in the meantime if we need food the robots will be doing the farming um (laughs) if if that's if that's a necessity uh in whichever version comes around um uh, and because the robots are doing it all and uh, producing it all essentially for free um it'll be it'll be a commodity which everybody has enough of um you know we are looking at uh, quite deep future concepts here so a lot of what we take for granted about our current life uh, uh is is not very helpful to understanding it but um so there was a very interesting book uh, written by cory doctorow called um uh, down out in the magic kingdom where it was a sort of world like that um where People got their um, extra brownie points for society and therefore extra privileges by doing stuff useful for that society. So he would he was doing maintaining the uh, the Magic Kingdom or the or Disneyland down in Florida and uh, all these old quaint rides which people still liked to go on, and that's how he got his sort of what was called woofy i think you pronounce it woofy um which is it's like extra credits um, which which you get respect for for from earning. This all sounds very dangerous, though, because it sounds like freemium games. It sounds like uh, Clash of Clans and the Kim Kardashian game, which is people uh, people signing up and 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 you know paying credits towards um, you know dressing things up or doing whatever. Yeah, I, I think it's very applied like, to the massive scale. I think it's very <laughs> likely that, in, especially in the beginning, that if you if if you want to get a certain level or something like that in in this virtual world, that it's sponsored. And it could be like innocuous. It's just like you know this this uh, driving simulation sponsored by BMW, um, or it could be to the point where you're like you're not even sure what's sponsored anymore and what and and what is. Well, kind of goes into the thing about you know I think you're about to be able to uh, buy your own Twitter verification, or that was sort of um, you know that was that sort of surfaced, and then it kind of goes into the whole thing about people who buy Instagram and, and Twitter followers, and and if that actually helps them on the digital landscape or people can just totally see through that. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I, I read that, um, if, if you, um, if you've written a book and for some reason you want to go with a traditional publisher, one of the first things they'll do when they'll look at your likelihood of success is look at how many Twitter followers you've got. And, uh, coming from old media, they're not sophisticated enough to realize that you can actually buy them for, you know, um, a few dollars for thousands and thousands of them. So, but the, the, the sort of, you, ha- you need 50,000, Twitter followers in order to convince a publisher that it's worth having it these days. So, but um, yeah, as I said, they, they don't they necessarily understand that it's very easy to buy them um, at that price. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like I think it is. I mean, it's pretty obvious. To um, uh, I read a good article about how you know when you do do that, uh, you know, looking at all your original followers, you know, obviously interact with each other and have sort of a closed loop of. I think there is probably about 65% of overlap between your other followers because in some way, um, but then all the other followers would just like stand out like a sore thumb and, and not be, cause they're all just bots. And so, um, I, you know, I feel like there's obviously ways that people kind of, uh, do a security check on people, but I guess what you said about old media, just not having the wherewithal to actually be able to carry that out. Sure. Uh, you'll, you'll see my book coming out, uh, in the next 12 months. I just have to get all the followers first. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that would be pretty, that would be great to just write about that process. Be like, I got this terrible book published <laughs> based on my, my inflated, uh, Twitter feed. Yeah. yeah. Um, but isn't there, if everyone is sort of doing part of the shared economy and if everyone is, um, obviously there are some jobs that are i mean do you, do you think there are some jobs that are lost in some way or do you think that just creates an imbalanced ecosystem after a while if there are sort of uh not to get like too snowpiercer you know everyone on the train doing different things but um doesn't that do you think it kind of gets gets rid of specialization in a way if everyone is sort of you know their own part of the shared economy 
Yeah, I guess. Um, but you know, it's what we were saying earlier on about everybody having different types of roles, um, depending on you know what they felt like doing at the moment. I mean, I was reading an article on the Forbes website today, as an example, about a, an Uber driver who uh, earns a uh, quarter of a million dollars a year because he's using his Uber passengers to sell other things to, in his case, particularly jewellery. That's brilliant. Uh, he's <laughs> so he's, his, his, um, his actual uh, cab is, is, or his car is, uh, is actually turned into his mo- uh, mobile um, show, showroom for this jewellery and stuff. Uh, and that's where he gets all his customers from. So I think there's going to be some fascinating, um, fascinating variants of the sort of multi-role um, career and you um, combine different roles and sell people different things and, and add value in different ways that we haven't even begun to think about yet. Yeah, I think the key for 21st century business is sort of, um, you know, add value in ways that no one expected or no one thought about five years ago. I feel like that's probably... Not that new things aren't being created because new things are always created, um, but it seems like adding value in the arbitrage on existing business and existing money seems to be a big theme. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. There's a device I heard about yesterday because I was at this uh, at the Bollywood uh, VR shoot, and somebody talked about a device that um, it's a it's sort of a cross between like a homing pigeon and a falcon and a GoPro, and so you can throw. Basically, you throw the camera up in the air, and it turns around, and it can take a selfie of you. Which, oh, <laughs> which yeah. sounds yeah. <laughs> the boomerang, the boomerang selfie camera. I feel like that's the worst use of it, but I think it would be. Uh, I've, I've seen stuff like that, but I was like, that's uh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Um, what are sort of your bigger? Um, we might have to wrap up in a little bit. Uh, it's been great, but what are some of your big in terms of the companies that you're working with and overseeing? And 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 well, you don't have to give away too much, but what are, what are some of the technologies that you're excited for, or you were sort of predicting developing in the next five or ten years? Well, um, some of the companies I'm working with um, at the moment. Um, I mean, one of the ones I'm I'm really fascinated by is. Uh, a company which is started by uh, two surgeons um, in the UK, although most of the business and the focus is on the US, um, <clears throat> where um, they invented a, an app where, which uh, teaches um, and trains other surgeons how to do specific operations. So that might seem a bit weird, learning how to do an op- operation on, on your iPhone. Um, but on the other hand, um, most surgeons are you know, faced with in- in- increasing complexity um, throughout their careers, um, particularly when it comes to technology. Um, so you know, knee joints are, are, are changing all the time, artificial knee joints or hip joints or, or whatever. And uh, most surgeons have a, a lot of operations in their repertoire, which they don't necessarily do every day. So the idea of having a little walkthrough to remind them beforehand is... Uh, is, is a really valuable one, uh, and so it's really taking off, and it's being endorsed by you know, everyone from Duke to Stanford to all the or Harvard to all the big teaching hospitals, um, and, uh, and 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 so that that's really interesting, and, and perhaps the next generation would be at the moment we've got an operating room in the pocket, and maybe we can actually go into the operating room itself in some kind of virtual reality vehicle as well. So that that kind of thing is is really fascinating. Um, another company I'm working with, which um, uh, I love is um, started by a very young guy. I, I actually found him when I was mentoring at his school at, at 18 and uh, helped him raise his first uh, round of financing and been involved ever since. Um, and it's, it's a website called Appear Here. And um, basically it allows you to, uh, if you're a landlord, to uh, f- find somebody to rent out your shop on a short-term lease. And if you uh, if you want to, a shop on a short-term lease, it's a pop-up shop, um, you can find uh, where to rent one. And there's a fascinating trend coming out of that um, where – in you know even a couple of years ago if you wanted to start a retail business say you're you know you had a recipe for cupcakes which you thought was great um the only way of doing it originally would be to um you know take out a 10-year lease uh get the staff get the equipment put it in the shop and you're talking about you know a million dollars or so to 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 start a retail one-off retail shop and now you can rent one for a week. You can staff it yourself, um, and you can bake your cupcakes at home and bring them in every morning. Uh, and you've got a, a you know a variation of the um, minimum viable product retail. 
store. And so we've got, you know, dozens and dozens of, of cases now of company, of people, you know, starting their own little retail shop uh, for a week and deciding there's a business here and going off and opening multiple shops on, 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 as a result. So I think that's another really interesting thing about, you know, the, the, the multiple careers thing we were talking about um, during the podcast. So um, th- I think those are the two which bring to mind. And, and the third one, I guess, um, is um, a company called TapDAC, which um, started by another very young guy, um, 23. In fact, he was on one of um, on the list of uh, Forbes under 30 under 30 recently, um, and they're looking at the whole problem um, in the App Store about around discovery. So, unless you're a very big um, games company like uh, like King, as an example, uh, chances are that you know you've got the great app that no one will ever find out about it because you can't afford to advertise. And TapDAC is uh, a marketplace where you know as an app developer you can swap traffic from your app with other people, independent developers' apps, and uh, and get your product more widely um, distributed and and put yourself in danger of actually earning earning some money out of it. <laughs> so those are sort of three uh, three three ones off the top of my head, but uh, they always say that you shouldn't have favourite children, and um, those are just three who are my favourite amongst all the other favourites. <laughs> That's very cool. It sounds like you have a lot of uh, interesting irons in the fire there, and uh, I'm sure there's lots of other, uh, whether they're top secret or not, other uh, companies and ventures that you have that you'll reveal in the next few years. Um, uh, it was great having you on the show, Russell. I really appreciate it. And uh, to you. Yeah, um, thanks a lot, Russell, for coming on. Yeah, thanks so much. We'll definitely be. We'll, we'll definitely talk soon. Great. Good luck. Thanks very much. Bye bye.